buddy, how you doing? It's good to see you. What's up, Mr. James Bond, Jimmy Bond? Good to see you. Let's all stand as we open by the reading of Psalm 99. We have Pastor Ed bringing the word tonight. We got Bob Bennett with us. So, yes. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and in his high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we take this time to uh, commit to you. We ask that you would have your way with this service, Lord. Be with the word that you have prepared through Pastor Ed this weekend, Lord God. I pray that you be with the worship, be with the guest artists. May everything be used for your glory and to draw us into your presence, we pray. Have your way, Lord. We love you. Thank you for your grace that has met us here. And we just commit this time to you. And all of God's believers agreed by saying, amen. Why don't you guys say hello to each other and then we will worship.
Love.
Good friend, Mr. Bob Bennett. Howdy. Very happy to be back with you again. Sacred holy thing to have ears to hear many different voices sing. For we are not alone, lost or scattered. 
The Spirit of God is here Where two or more are gathered If you have a burden that's too hard to bear We will share it We will bear it upon our prayers And with your broken heart We weep in sorrow For if we hold you up today You may do the same for us tomorrow Oh, the blessing of his congregation we cannot do alone what happens here joined as one body in his new creation oh abba father draw us What a sacred sight to see Every tongue and tribe gathered as community No more to be alone, lost or scattered The Spirit of God is here Two or more are gathered. Two or more are gathered. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy As it was from the start, so now and forever. World without end, amen. Amen. Thank you. There is never anything that we can do or stop doing <laughs> that will punch our ticket to salvation. And yet, we're told that once we are redeemed, once we are adopted into the family of God, that you can ascertain certain important things about our faith by the things that we do, by the fruit that comes. And so this is a song that I wrote to remind myself that there are some things that we can do that Jesus says, when you do these, it is as if you have done them unto me. Things that he takes pretty personally. So this is called Unto the Least of These. Mm -hmm. 
cold and windy on these streets tonight. Lines are forming now. Meals to be eaten, beds to find. Hearts are warming now. Love is given and love is received. A candle in the darkness because someone has believed. What Jesus said unto the least of these. What you do for them, you also do for me. You must give up what you have to become what you must be. Must give your love unto the least of these. It's warm inside the safe suburban home, but souls are dying now. The sound of words unspoken drowning out The sounds of crying now Love withheld is a love that disappears They do not care Because they cannot hear What Jesus said to the least of these what you do for them you also do for me you must give up what you have to become what you must be you must give your love unto the least of these hungry mouths to feed Thirsty souls in need, the naked clothed again. The sick in their distress, the prisoners of loneliness, the strangers welcomed in. Jesus said unto the least of what you do for them, you also do for me. You must give up who you are to become what you must be. You must give your love unto the least of me. You must give your love unto
power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and you guys. Thank you. Good job, Bob. Thank you so much. Let's give it up again for Bob Bennett. That was awesome. Thank you. All right, let's take a moment and check out this week's announcements, everybody. All right, guys, everyone, welcome to Bible study, but before that, Liam. What are you doing here? Let's try that again. I huh? just wanted to learn about the Word of God. And, well, I promise. Uh, there we go. This is young. Let's do it again. We'll get this one week. I promise, guys. I promise.
All right, guys, everyone, welcome to Bible study. But before that, Liam, please yes. stand up. What are you doing here? I just wanted to learn about the Word of God. And well, uh, this is Young Bloods, and the minimum requirement is 18 to 30. 30? And you're 15. So come back when your blood is older, but not too old, okay? Write <laughs> that down. <laughs> if your blood is not too young and not too old, you can come to Young Bloods. It's here at the cafe, Monday nights at 7. Look at me when I'm talking to him, your coach. The game yes, needs to be over by 5 o'clock because we have church at 6.30. You understand me? Yes, sir. Do you understand? I don't want you to think about this Tyler Swift. Who do you think that is? The Swifties? Swifties? Whatever they're called. 5 o'clock game needs to be over. Yes, sir. You understand me? Yes, sir. Do you understand me? Go, Travis! Woo! <laughs> 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 I just want you to know that this whole Super Bowl would not have been possible without you, T. Ah! What the hell? Oh, looks like we're not going to be able to make it to Sunday service. Well, even though there's a Super Bowl, there's still Sunday night service at Packing House. All right, just so you guys know. You can't say you didn't know there was Sunday night church, even though there's Super Bowl. All right, well, let's take a moment and pray before Pastor Ed comes and brings the word. And before we do that, just a reminder that there is open communion set up throughout the sanctuary. And you can partake of that at any time. And if you want to support the ministry here at the Packing House, there are offering uh, buckets in the back of the sanctuary and also in the foyer uh, that you can give any time. Let's stop and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your grace, Lord. We thank you for this place that we can come and be in the stillness of your presence, God. Tonight, we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you, for the grace that is abundant every day of our lives, God, because of the price that you paid upon the cross, Lord. We come together tonight knowing that you have a purpose for this evening, Lord God, for this message, for this time. And I ask that you would help our hearts to be humbled and open to hear what you have for us, God. So we lift you up, we praise your name, and we ask you to speak to us now. In your name we pray, amen. Wow, it's really quiet in here. After the announcements, anything sounds quiet, right? If you wouldn't mind standing with me, please. We're in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. As we work our way through scripture verse by verse. Now those who were scattered from Jerusalem after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them that all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was great that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to his brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's stop there and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for leaving for us this history so that we can track how the Holy Spirit started working uh, and bringing the church really throughout the whole earth that the gospel might be shared all over the world. Teach us now. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people agreed by saying, amen. You may be seated, please. So several years ago, uh, I found an ad in the uh, classified section of a newspaper that I just loved. It says, uh, lost one dog. Brown hair with several bald spots. Right leg broken due to auto accident. Left hip hurt. Right eye missing. Left ear bitten off in a dog fight. Answers to the name, Lucky. <laughs> in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, names are symbolic. They're very important. They were intended to mean, to point out a strong characteristic, some individual characteristic that a child had. Parents thought the essence of their child's character should be, excuse me, should be captured in the name that they gave to the child. <coughs> Orthodox newborns are not usually named, sometimes for weeks after they're born, until some kind of characteristic could be showed. When God created Adam, he gave him that name because Adam means something. Adam simply means man. Eve was created, and her name means mother of all living. So Jacob's parents named him that because when he came out, he had his hand on his brother's foot and, uh, or on the back of his heel. Uh, he was a twin brother. And uh, so they called him Jacob, which means heel catcher. His brother was full of red hair, so they called him Esau. 
and uh, various things like that. Judah means praise. Uh, when Samuel was born, his mother was so excited that God had answered her prayer that she named him Samuel. That means asked of God. Sometimes God changes the name of certain people later on in life. We find actually that a number of times. Abram, in the Old Testament, his name was changed to Abraham, meaning the father of a multitude. Sarai, his wife, her name was changed to Sarah, which means princess. Jacob's name was changed to Israel because he was a prince with God or he was ruled by God. Simon's name was changed to Peter, you'll remember, the rock. And uh, God uses different names in the Old Testament to reveal to us even his character, God himself. He's El Shaddai in Hebrew, which means the strong one. He's El Elyon, God most high. He is El Olim, which means the everlasting God. Yahweh Jireh, the God who provides. Yahweh Ropha is God who heals. Yahweh Makedesh, the God who sanctifies. Yahweh Sabbath, the God or the Lord of hosts. Angels, Yahweh Tiskanu, the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Shema, the God who is there. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our banner. And Yahweh Roha, the Lord our shepherd. So we're used to reading the Bible, knowing some of those names. For example, at Christmas time, I always read to you Isaiah 9 6. It says that Christ, his name, will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He is the second Adam, our advocate, the Alpha and Omega, the ancient of days, the amen, the author and the finisher of our faith, the blessed and only potentate, the captain of our salvation, the chief shepherd, the cornerstone. He is the day spring. He is the desire of the nations. He is the faithful witness, the first and the last. He is the good shepherd, our great high priest, the holy one of God, the great I am, the judge of Israel, the king of the Jews, the king of saints, and the king of kings. He is the light of the world, the Lord of all glory, the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah, the mediator between God and man, the man 
of sorrows, yet the mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace, the resurrection and the life, the rock of our salvation, the rose of Sharon, the root of David, the savior of the world, the shepherd and the bishop of souls, the son of righteousness, the son of man, the son of God. He is Shiloh. He is the true vine, the truth, the witness, the word of God. He is the lamb of God. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is our God. Various names mean various things. There can be a lot in the name. Back in Acts chapter 4, we were introduced to a man with the name Barnabas. Bar meaning son, Nabas meaning uh, of encouragement. His name was changed by the disciples because they were around this man and they saw that he was an expert at something and they named him that way. He was an expert of something that every person in this room needs to become an expert at, encouraging others. We're surrounded by people that God has put in our lives to support us, to build us up. And then vice versa, you are surrounded by people that need you to encourage them, building each other up, as Paul wrote. His original name was Joseph. He was a Greek-speaking Levite from the family, the, the tree of Levi a Jew from the island of Cyprus. But the apostles added this new name, the son of encouragement, because that just seemed like what he did all the time. And it's revealed in this section of scripture. This is the one, this Barnabas, this Joseph who was changed to Barnabas, who went out and brought back Saul of Tarsus or Paul the Apostle. Paul had not been embraced by the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem. They still thought that he was the one who was persecuting Christians, and they were all afraid of him. And finally, they took him down to Caesarea that we looked at last time and put him on a boat for his hometown, the place that he was born almost 400 miles away, Tarsus. And it's there that he hid out for at least, some say, 10 or 11 years. And then as we read, it's this man, the son of encouragement, who would go out and get Paul the apostle, who had been neutralized by discouragement, by criticisms, by other people running him down, and bring him back and light the torch that would spread the gospel over all of Europe and eventually the whole world. Now, 
what a thing to be known for, Barnabas, that you pulled a man out of semi-retirement, discouragement, Saul the Apostle, and you brought him back into the light so that the world might know the true light, Jesus Christ. Who do you know? Who is it in your life that you need to encourage that may have that impact on a lot of people? That's really the story we're looking at tonight. And then looking for an application in our own life. I'm surrounded by young men on our staff who are pastors and working their way through that, who are great encouragers. It's one of the characteristics I look for in young guys that tell me they want to be a pastor. Well, then you better learn how to encourage people who are beat up, burnt out, frustrated. So that's where we're going. It's uh, the son of encouragement that we're looking at. And uh, Jesus told his disciples that there was one important characteristic that they needed. He said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is Acts 1.8. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This man, we're told, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've been studying through Acts up until this point, you remember the gospel had gone out to Jews exclusively because the thought at that time, the only people who were Christians had been Jews. And so they reasoned, seemed logical, that you must first become a Jew and then you could become a Christian. Seemed logical, but with God, things are often different than what they appear to us. So a Roman soldier named Cornelius, you'll remember up in Caesarea, sent for Peter and asked him to come to his house because he heard Peter knew Jesus. And he did, but it was a momentous time in history because there were nothing but Gentiles there. There weren't any Jews in the house. And Peter presents the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls. They receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit and they are brought into the kingdom of God even though none of them were Jews. And all of a sudden there's a crossroads, there's a turning point in the history of the gospel. Now it's going to the whole world, as Jesus said. Three parts of this section, verse 19 through 22, preaching, and then 22 through 20, or 23 through 25, about this man Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And then we notice it changes from preaching in the first four verses to teaching in the last four verses. And that's an important distinction we'll look at. First of all, preaching. Let's jump in. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. That would be just north of Israel. Um, that is modern-day Lebanon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were the two ports that were 
um, the major form of commerce really across the Mediterranean, Phoenician. Cyprus, Cyprus is that island up against the, the coast of Turkey north. And then Antioch, a city. Antioch was a major pagan metropolis, you could say. The third largest city in the Roman Empire, uh, behind only Rome and Alexandria. Uh, it, it's fascinating that um, there's the ruins of it. That was an amphitheater that would sit 100,000 people. And the Romans built an amphitheater that was one-tenth the side of the city. So 100,000 people means there were a million people in the rest of the city. That's a Roman road that leads from there all the way to Istanbul, Constantinople. And uh, this is a church that is uh, still in use uh, and it, it, in Antioch. And it is actually in, uh, over the border from Turkey in Syria. That's a coin from 14 AD, really about the time we're looking at. It's a little bit early, but it's a gold coin that was found. There's the outside of that church, that Christian church in uh, Syria. So don't let anyone tell you there aren't any churches in Syria or that it's a Muslim nation. It is not. Uh, Turkey is a majority of Muslims, but uh, Syria has uh, many Christians, about 30% of the nation. And uh, so that's the, the face of this carved out of the rock church. Pretty cool, actually. But it opens up onto that beautiful valley. So we're looking at pictures of, um, of Antioch. And it is not far from the city of Aleppo that's been in the news, if you see, up on the war in, uh, in the Middle East. But um, there we go. So Rome was the largest city, political capital of the Roman Empire on the Tiber River. Uh, Alexandria in Egypt, northern Egypt, was the second largest city at the mouth of the Nile River. And here Antioch in Syria was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, also located on a, a major river, the Orontes. Um, so the city was known for, or I should say notorious for, its wealth and its luxury and its immorality. It was the center of worship uh, to Diana. It, it, was a, um, it was filled with hostile, uh, and uh, it is a uh, notorious example of sin and decadence in the, in the first century. Um, like I said, it's about 350 miles from Jerusalem. It was notorious for its immorality. And I, I keep emphasizing that because I want you to see that this city, Antioch, became the center of Christianity in a very short time, a few decades. It's discouraging, I know, when you read the news and you look at what's going on in America. We seem to be slipping and slipping. But this was the Las Vegas, if you will, of the ancient world. And Paul and Barnabas end up there preaching for a year, and the gospel takes over the city. 
and the city itself became a center for Christianity. It has um, a, a background of, uh, of all kinds of Christian influences from there into the rest of the world. In the first century, Barnabas, Paul, Peter, John, all taught there in that city. In the second century, Ignatius, those of you that are into the early church fathers, and a guy named Theophilus, both were teachers in the city of Antioch. And in the third and fourth city, uh, Lucian, Theodore, and John Christosom. And I mentioned John Christosom because he's a very interesting pastor of the largest church in the world in the fourth century. Those of you that have traveled and gone to, say, Istanbul, Turkey, there's a huge church in Istanbul that's been converted uh, that is called Sophia. And uh, it is a enclosed church that has its own atmosphere. It's so big. Um, it had room for 50,000 people. This church seats 3,000 people, okay? <laughs> so 50,000 people, that's how the gospel spread in Antioch. From decadence, from gambling, from immorality, even drugs, from that to a center that has a church. Now, 50,000 in Sophia in Istanbul, in Antioch, under John Christosom, 100,000 people came to church on a Sunday morning, he wrote, in the fourth century. Can you imagine going to a building that would have 100, no seats, no, no place to sit down, everybody stood. So it's a little bit like uh, the Rose Bowl being covered, like maybe a giant stadium today, um, the new one in L.A. or something. So that was the church that grew out of Barnabas bringing Saul to there, and believers uh, begin to uh, rise up and uh, overflow. Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So Dr. Luke, um, who wrote Acts, wants the reader to understand that some came preaching, but they only spoke to Jews. Again, thinking Jews, you had to be a Jew first before you could become a Christian. Verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is that island uh, still same today, uh, although it half Turkish-speaking and half Greek-speaking today. Cyrene is over on North Africa, is Libya today, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to these Greek speakers preaching the Lord Jesus. The gospel has gone out. Now there are men and women, we'll read later, who are traveling to the known world to preach the gospel. These are missionaries in true sense of the word. Um, Lay people, they're unknown. They don't give us their names. Um, They didn't become famous. They made no headlines on earth in the first century. And most of us, that will be true about us, that we're here to serve the Lord and to bring people into the kingdom of God. 
And uh, we don't care uh, whether our name appears in a newspaper or anywhere else, but only that the kingdom of God would be furthered. So they spoke to these Hellenists, these Greeks, um, probably spoke Greek and Latin because that was starting to sweep across the Roman Empire at the time. And they preached, and the word preached the Lord Jesus is evangelizo, e, uh, evangelio, excuse me, in Greek, uh, to proclaim the good news. They were preaching Jesus Christ, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. I love that phrase. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. It's actually a, a phrase that appears many times in the Old Testament, 38 times in the whole Bible, but 34 of those times are in the Old Testament. Here it is in the New Testament. Um, four times it's used in the New Testament, always by Dr. Luke. Um, Luke is pairing the Old Testament Jewish phrase with the work of God in a Gentile church. And you remember Luke himself was a Gentile. And um, one early church father said that Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was born in Antioch, verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, or it came back, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. <clears throat> so, church in Jerusalem sends out an able man. They know there aren't any uh, teachers there. Uh, Barnabas was known for his, you'll remember, generosity in Acts chapter 4, and he accepted Saul of Tarsus after he was converted in Acts chapter 9, and Barnabas had the ministry of bringing people together. He was an encourager. So, um, he goes, verse 23, and when he came, and when he came to Antioch, and had seen the grace of God, that's an interesting statement. How do you see the grace of God? The grace of God became visible in Antioch. In the NIV, it says he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, and he was glad. Grace was visible. Grace in your life should be visible to others. I um, put it in the bulletin. I don't know. Some people take, grab the bulletin on Saturday night and some don't. So I'm going to read to you what's in the bulletin. And it's about that word, grace. He came and had seen the grace of God. Uh, it's a great devotional. I didn't write it. Uh, written by Max Lucado. And uh, the title is Grace, which is the unmerited favor with God. God gives grace to anyone who will receive it. The grace of God is raining down on this place right now. Get ready to catch it. Grace, more than we deserve, greater than we can imagine is what Lucado wrote. Okay. We talk as though we understand that term, grace. The bank gives us a grace period. The CD politician falls from grace. Musicians speak 
of a grace note. We describe an actress as gracious, a dancer as graceful. We use the word for hospitals, baby girls, kings, and pre-meal prayers. We're gonna say grace, right? We talk as though we know what grace means, but do we really understand it? Or have we settled for a wimpy grace? It politely occupies a phrase in a hymn, Amazing Grace. It fits nicely on a church sign, Grace Community Church. It never causes trouble or demands a response. And when asked, do you believe in grace, who could say no? Have you ever been changed by grace? Shaped by grace? Strengthened by grace? Emboldened by grace? Softened by grace? Snatched by the nap of your neck and shaken to your senses by God's grace? God's grace has a drenching about it, a wildness about it, a whitewater riptide to turn you upside downness about it. Grace comes after you. It rewires you from insecure to God secure, from regret riddled do better because of it. From afraid to die, to ready to fly. Grace is the voice that calls us to change, then gives us the power to pull it off. The new given name of Joseph, son of encouragement, Barnabas, is already being displayed in this verse. He came and he saw grace in people's lives. You have to look for grace in people's lives. Sometimes people wear a mask. They don't want you to see that God's doing a work in them. But it's great joy when you watch people changed by grace. I did a funeral this week of someone from the church who was a a lifelong friend of mine, personally. In fact, we grew up together in the same neighborhood. Our mothers were were personal friends, so that's how we got to know each other. And so from before kindergarten all the way through high school, and then he went off to the Vietnam War, became a pilot. And uh, some of you know the Farquhar family here in town. And uh, this was the uh, oldest son, Monty Farquhar. He passed away last week. And somebody asked me why I was doing the, uh, the service. And they said, was he a Christian? I said, only recently. Because it was a little more than a year ago, sitting right back there. I watched him come in when I was speaking. He didn't know what time the service started, first time in church in like 40 years. 
And, uh, and when we did our little altar call, you know, raise your hand, I looked over there and he had his hand up. <laughs> and uh, this guy was my height, he's six, three or four and 240 pounds and uh, a top gun pilot for the Navy. He taught at Miramar. And just a man's man. And uh, he came up and we talked and renewed our friendship and we met many times after that. But he was uh, carrying a lot of baggage from Vietnam and then Desert Storm and then the Iraqi War. And uh, I watched the grace of God work in his life. And he learned to forgive himself, to ask God for forgiveness, so that I could say at the funeral over at the Arlington Cemetery this week, Monty is in heaven, I know he is. Not because he went to church every week, or not because he read the Bible through a thousand times, or, or not because he gave money, or not because he went on mission because he came to the understanding that his sin was paid for by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. No more complicated than that. It's not based upon performance. It's based upon surrender to him. So I got to watch Grace in this man who I knew very well. And... Um, and, and be changed, radically changed in a matter of less than two years so that when he passed, he wanted a Christian funeral and he wanted his friends, most of which were shocked when I told them that he was now a Christian through the service. But it's a good thing to look for grace in each other. Verse 24 this man, Barnabas, was a good man, characteristics here, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord because of these characteristics of Barnabas. The good man, it means in the Greek language, more than he behaved himself, okay? It's a reference to his disposition, it was, the word good here is agathos, and it means agreeable, joyful, a good attitude. <laughs> That's a big word for me, attitude. You see, uh, I have found out that I can't change many things in life. I can't change my children. I can't change my grandchildren. I can't change my wife. I, I can't change you. Look at you. But what I can change is my own attitude. Maybe the only thing that I can change, I can choose to have a good attitude, no matter what the circumstances are. That's what this word means. Barnabas was the kind of guy that had a good attitude. 
not because he was putting on a phony face, because he chose to have a good attitude. Another thing he chose is the next word, and of faith. You see, faith is not a feeling. Faith is a choice. You must choose to believe in God. You must choose to trust him. Nobody can do it for you. Others you could talk about with them, but only you can pull the trigger. Only you can make the difference. So here was a man who chose a good attitude. Full of the Holy Spirit, he chose to trust in God for his life. And the result was many people were added to the kingdom of God because of it. Of faith. Verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek for Saul. He could see that there was a need for teachers here in Antioch. Now, if you look at a map, um, Tarsus is... uh, Uh, The green on the right, the letter B, is where he was. That's Antioch. And then up at the top is another green uh, circle at the end of that purple route. The purple route is the road that Barnabas had to take to go get Saul. That's Tarsus up there on the left upper corner. And then they're going to have to come all the way back. Now, 150 miles, no big deal in a car today. They were walking, and there were two mountain passes they had to go through to get there. I've driven that road. It's absolutely horrible. And uh, it's like uh, going up uh, to the top of the Cologne Pass. There's Tarsus today. It has its own zoo. It is a university town. It is actually uh, beautiful. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, This is Cleopatra's Arch. I don't know if those of you that are in the history buffs might remember that this is where Cleopatra met Mark Anthony, a great love story of uh, of the Egyptian and Roman empires coming together. It was under that... Uh, over or that bridge or that doorway. This is the road between the two. As you can see, Tarsus is still called Tarsus today. And I can't pronounce that city up above it. Kamayalaya. So what do you think? Okay. Anyway, um, last one is uh, that. So he, uh, it says he went to seek Paul, verse 25. And the Greek word is an unusual one, anazeto. It means to search up and down, high and low. It only appears one other time, and it's in the Gospel of Luke. It's where, you remember, Joseph and Mary uh, were in Jerusalem, and they uh, left the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple, and they headed back home, and Mary thought, 
that Jesus was with Joseph, and Joseph thought that Jesus was with Mary, and they went a couple of days out, and they saw each other, and they both said to each other, where's Jesus? And he said, it was your job, he was with you. No, no, he, he was with you. And they, as couples do, they argued, and they freaked out. And the, this word, uh, to seek Jesus, uh, appears there in Luke chapter 2. And it means they were frantically looking for Jesus because they thought they'd lost the Messiah and that God might be upset with them or something. That was a bad joke anyway. I just threw it in for free. Um, Now, the last section, verse 26. And when they had found him, when he, Barnabas, had found Saul, or Paul as we know him, he brought him back to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This section introduces this concept of of words being applied to people, Joseph's name being changed to Barnabas. And here we have believers' names. Uh, being called Christians. Now, Christ or Christos in the Greek language is Christ. It means the anointed one, and it's the name for Jesus. You add the I-A-N on the end of it, and it means the word man or woman. A Christ man or a Christ woman. Now, the word's kind of beat up in our day, but, uh, and it was probably used in that day in a derogatory manner. <clears throat> but it's interesting that uh, God puts a stamp of approval on this. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, Christ men, Christ women. And, uh, and so you and I shouldn't feel bad about anyone calling this that. Verse 27, and in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. So the year goes by. Paul and Barnabas are teaching all these young believers. And a man who had the gift of prophecy, his name is Agabus, we'll see in the next verse, comes from Jerusalem. He was sent there because he had a prophecy of a famine, but he was sent to request help of the large church that was there financially. Verse 28, one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which we know happened because of secular history in A.D. 46. So the famine uh, hit, and um, this prophecy was predictive. Not all prophecy is predictive, but um, these men, uh, or this man came and spoke it. And we know that um, Claudius Caesar was emperor from 41 to 54. So if you're trying to figure out what time period after Jesus died, we're reading about this. You can see it's within 20 years, maybe 30. Verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, 
determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Um, the Christians there, the new Christians in Antioch, took this seriously and began preparations to meet the needs for those who were back in Jerusalem. Uh, they thought of helping the mother church. And this they also did, verse 30, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the church uh, trusted Barnabas and Saul, and they were given this money to take back to Jerusalem. I think there's a, a, an interesting message here. Um, I, I've watched uh, some people uh, in our church over the years, last, I'll say last 20 years, who have um, some gotten excited about prophecy and, uh, and about Jesus' return and the rapture, and, and they have uh, come to me, several families over the years, and said, you know, uh, we're uh, going to take all our cash and turn it into gold. <clears throat> and at least two couples I'm thinking of have done this, and then moved to Idaho and, uh, and uh, buy some assault weapons and get a lot of ammunition. And uh, forgive me if you say that to me because I'll say back to you, so you're going to shoot people when they come looking for food uh, during the, uh, after the rapture? I don't plan on being here after the rapture. Uh, but I, I thought that this is a parallel to that. This is what the first century did. They collected money and they sent it to the people who were living in the area that was going to get hit the hardest by the famine. So it's just a different attitude than trying to hole up somewhere in, you know, the north of Las Vegas or something. Um, they said by the hands of... Okay, let's go back and close with uh, 23. And when he and Cain, Barnabas, had come to Antioch and seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them, there's his name, and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Once more, that grace is the attitude that flows out of our lives when we have surrendered to him. Somebody asked uh, the author of the article I read earlier about grace, um, Max Lucado, uh, why did he write yet another book about grace. There's so many good books already written. And this is what he said. The Apostle Paul never seemed to exhaust the topic of grace. What makes us think that we can? He just kept coming at it and coming at it from yet another angle. And that's the thing about grace. It's like springtime. You can't put it in a single sentence definition. It, no other philosophy or religion has anything quite like this idea, this thing called grace. No other religion has this idea that God takes this initiative and comes after us, not just to save us, but also to sustain us. Grace is God's greatest work, and he's giving it to us. 
But what is grace? Grace is God replacing our dying, disease-filled heart with his heart. When we are accused by the world and by ourselves, we feel the fiery wrath of condemnation. But Jesus gave up everything for me to feel free from the punishment of condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One final thought. Alexander the Great um, was a brilliant strategist and a, a powerful general, certainly not a believer, but a great general. Uh, not only a leader of men, he was fearless in battle, and I've read a fair amount about, it, about him. And uh, whenever they had to charge an enemy, he was always on his horse named Lucifilus, and they said it was the largest horse ever seen in the world. Um, but, and he would ride in front of his troops. He was always out in front. And somehow he managed to escape arrows and, and swords and spears and all those things. Um, but he also was a real stickler for discipline and at the end of every battle, um, he would have a court. Um, he made his way, probably most of you know, by 33 years old, he had conquered the known world all the way to New Delhi, India. And uh, he wanted to go on, but his generals told him there really wasn't anything beyond that they knew about. There wasn't anything left to conquer. <laughs> and he sat down and wept because he didn't have anything more to conquer. But at the end of each battle, as at this one I just described to you, he would sit on a throne and put his two ranking generals on each side, and they would hear cases, usually of men who had tried to desert in the middle of the battle that they had just finished. And that one was no different. But they did bring a very young man who, uh, and I'll just read to you uh, the way it was written by his in his autobiography. He was sitting in judgment on the battlefield where he was both judge and jury. His word was law. I'm not saying that that's good. I'm just saying that's the way it was. Before him was brought this young man, a fair-haired youth, a very, but very young. Alexander asked him um, what the boy's name was. The officer who was representing him said, Alexander, sir. At once, the great general's countenance softened. It was as if he was flattered that the boy had his name and had, and his men breathed a sigh of relief. Perhaps there would be some leniency for this young man because the charge against him was cowardice. And um, the general suddenly transformed from a smiling judge to an intense, tight-jawed grimace. Looking at the boy squarely in the eye, he said to him deliberately, son, what did you say was your name? And he said, Alexander, sir. But this time, Alexander pulled himself up to his full height and walked over and put his finger in the young man's face, and he said, young man, what did you say was your name? And this time the kid was scared, and he, he stuttered, and he said, uh, 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 Alexander, sir. 
Alexander jumped at him, grabbed him by the front of his armor, and picked him up with one hand and said, young man, change your behavior or change your name. We are called Christians. Would you stand please and we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us out of darkness and into light. Thank you that you have given to us this grace that we've tried to look at a little bit tonight. And most of it in this room are blessed to say you have forgiven us and we feel we sense your presence even here in this place. But again, Lord, we try and give an opportunity for everyone. So uh, we ask, Lord, if there's anyone here this evening who's not walking with you, that you would speak to them right now and give them grace. Christians, please pray. So I wonder if there's someone here who's never surrendered their life to Christ before, or maybe you have, and it's been such a long time that you've wandered off the path. This, is, this moment is for you. If you'd like to know that you're going to spend eternity with God, if you're ready to surrender your life to him, would you let me know that you're ready by looking up at me and raising your hand? I won't do anything to embarrass you. I'll just acknowledge it. God bless you. Two of you in the back. Anyone over here God is speaking to? Yes, God bless you. Anyone else? Don't miss any hands. All right, well, the three of you raise your hands. Would you please pray out loud with us? We're going to ask God to forgive our sins, and he's going to hear and change you. We'll do it with you to make it easier. So everybody, please say out loud, Lord Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. Please forgive my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Those of you that raise your hands, we'd encourage you to go over here to these double doors. Some of our elders are there. We'd love to give you a Bible and pray with you. If you're sick and need prayer, go there to the rest. God bless you. Give somebody a hug before you go home. Good night. <laughs>